0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, good morning, everyone. Okay, Uh, we're going to be looking this morning uh, in Matthew chapter, in in the end of chapter Matthew 26 and beginning of chapter uh, 27 of Matthew. So if you have a Bible or if you want to follow along on the screen as we read, Matthew 26, starting in verse 69, Uh, let's read. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And immediately, the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away And delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. And when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying and they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set, by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Um, this is a sad, tragic uh, story and account, and um, it's a it's a good reminder for us that as human beings. We've been uh, blessed or cursed with the ability to do cause and effect thinking, uh, meaning that we can we can look at how our actions produce certain results or consequences, and that's actually a blessing when we're looking forward, right? It helps us uh, it helps us plan better for the future and make better choices because we we see how our actions and our choices will impact our future, either positively or negatively. Uh, but that gift is a curse when looking backward, right, when looking back at our past, uh, because the past is fixed, and it cannot be changed or altered. And um, uh, there's there's no, on, on our life, there's no such thing as a rewind button, right, uh, which I don't know, most things maybe now don't have rewind buttons anymore, we just delete, we have delete buttons, right? But it used to be you could, if you're making a tape or a recording, you could rewind And if you messed up, you could do it again, right? Well, life doesn't work that way, right? There's no rewind. There's no way to go back and change our past, right? And and because we can reflect on this, because we can look back and consider how our choices led to bad outcomes or results, it can leave us feeling um, the, the, the pain of regret. And just thinking, oh, if only I had if only if I had chosen differently, if only I had acted differently, it could have changed the whole course of my life. Um, I remember talking with a man a few years back who wasn't a believer, but had contacted us because he was very suicidal. And as I sat down and heard him share his story, he told me that he had been very successful in his profession. He was really at the top of his profession uh, and was making a lot of money that came along with, uh, uh, with the success uh, of what he was doing. Uh, but he had made a bad choice in his career uh, related to his job and his work, and he had actually done something that, as it turns out, was illegal. Um, and uh, maybe he knew it was illegal, maybe he didn't, I don't know. But, but looking back on that one choice in that one event, uh, he could see how it wrecked his life. Uh, he was forced out of that profession, unable to ever get a job in that profession again. Uh, and uh, with that was the loss of his reputation, all of his success, and all the wealth that he had built up over all those years. And he had run away to Chiang Mai uh, to try to sort out his life. But even several years later, he was daily haunted by that one choice and its devastating impact on his life. And, and he could not let go of it, and it was consuming him uh, to the point that uh, that he just wanted to take his own life. He thought that was the only way out. And constantly, he all he could talk about is if I had only, right? If only I had done things differently. If only I had chosen differently. If only I hadn't made that one mistake, my life would be so different. Right? Uh, well, that's that's. Uh, the unfortunate reality of our our ability to consider uh, consequences of, of our cause-and-effect thinking. And, uh, and we see that played out in two people in these stories, first by Peter and then by Judas, and uh, the devastating effect it has on them emotionally and otherwise. Uh, and so we want to look today at how, how do we deal with these feelings. And the reality is probably all of us can look back at things that we regret in our life. Uh, and we'll talk about it. if you don't have regrets. We'll talk about that later. What might that be? Why, why that might be? But most of us will look back and know that there are things we did, choices we made, actions we've done that we would love to hit the rewind button and do over. But of course we can't, right? So so how do we find relief from those feelings of regret? How do we cope with the reality that our life could be much different, maybe much better, much easier? if we had only uh, changed that one uh, action or that one choice, if we'd only been smarter or more careful? Uh, Is it possible to be delivered from a life of regret and the painful sorrow that comes with it? Uh, Well, uh, there's hope. (laughs) I believe in in the gospel, right, there is hope. We don't have to live with that regret. Uh, But we want to look at these two stories that give us two very different pictures of how uh, these two men dealt with their bad choices and their bad actions. Uh, and one ends uh, in the worst possible way. And the other one ends very differently. Uh, and Matthew clearly lines them up back to back to compare these two tales of regret and how they dealt with it. So let's first look at Peter, uh, the first account we come to. Uh, in verse, verse, uh, verse 57, uh, uh, which is kind of jumping back a little bit into the previous passage we looked at last Sunday. Let's start there. It says, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. All right, so Peter, uh, after Jesus' arrest in the garden, uh, all the other disciples just run off, disappear into the dark. But Peter uh, initially apparently ran away, but he didn't run too far. And he watches as this mob grabs Jesus and and drags Jesus back to the temple, and ultimately to the uh, home of the high priest. And so Peter keeps a safe distance, but he follows them, and he follows them right into the courtyard of the house. And back then, the Houses, Wealthy houses were built in kind of a square rectangle, and in the center was a big open courtyard, and that apparently is how it was for the high priest. And so this crowd with the guards and and who who knows who all else was with them all kind of end up in this courtyard, and Peter thinks, well, I'll just blend into the crowd, right? And it was a a cool, uh, probably April, March, April evening night, and there was a fire going, and Peter warms himself at the fire and thinks that he's just going to blend in (laughs) With this crowd, right? But unfortunately, he does not blend in so well, and uh, there's people who recognize him. Uh, but his goal is to see the end. He wants to see what's going to happen to Jesus. Right? He wants to know where this is going to go. And if you remember earlier uh, in the evening, Peter had pledged Jesus, "I, I will never forsake you. I will die for you." Right. So that's the backdrop of all this. And so Peter's here in the courtyard. And he's actually identified three different times as a disciple, as one who was with Jesus. And not just with Jesus, but with Jesus when they arrested him, right? And so the first, uh, it says, is a servant girl. Now, Peter, verse 69, Peter was sitting outside the courtyard, outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. Right? So it's interesting, the first person that uh, confronts Peter is a servant girl. And in the Greek, it's not just that she was a servant girl, but it's worded, uh, it's worded like this. Uh, there was just this little servant girl. Right? And not to belittle her as a person, but the idea here is that she's not, a, she's not a, an official. She's not an official representative of the high priest. She's not one of the guards. She's not carrying a sword. She's got no power to arrest Peter, right? It's just a little servant girl. Maybe she was young, or maybe she was just a very low position. But the point is, she's essentially no threat to Peter, right? But Peter uh, responds to her, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about, right? Now, uh, good for Peter that in this first round, he doesn't actually deny that he knows Jesus he he actually has a very clever ploy here to just avoid the problem it's like eh, I don't huh what right he just kind of dodges dodges the question right he doesn't lie he doesn't say he doesn't know Jesus he just dodges the question i don't I don't know what you're talking about right um, and if he had stopped there uh, maybe we would say well he didn't actually really stack stand up for Jesus he didn't He didn't declare, hey, yeah, I'm Jesus' friend, but maybe he hasn't done anything so terrible yet, right? But it doesn't end there. And interestingly, Peter uh, moves away from the light of the fire, and it says he moves to the entrance, the gate of the house, the entrance. So now he's standing still where he can see what the outcome is going to be, but he has removed himself more from the crowd, right? And by the way, it makes it very clear that uh, that that Peter responds to everybody standing around. So people are hearing, listening to this. It's not just a private conversation. Everybody's heard what the servant girl said. And he replies to all of them. I don't know what you're talking about. And he removes himself farther away from Jesus. Right? And then in verse 71, then he went out to the entrance, and another servant girl saw him. Same Same idea. Uh, not an important person, just a servant girl. And she said to the bystanders, okay, she's now not addressing Peter, but she's talking to the crowd still standing around. This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it, but this time with an oath. I do not know the man. Um, And and the idea here of oath uh, is, is that Peter essentially says, look, may I be cursed if I'm lying. Okay, now, now Peter has just stepped over into a whole other realm, a whole other world. Uh, and he's stated emphatically, I do not know Jesus. And he says it with such force that he says, may God curse me, may God strike me dead if I am lying. And okay, that's when everybody starts kind of backing up from Peter, right? Um, waiting for the lightning bolt to strike. And he's definitely crossed the line, right? Um, He he is now not just physically distancing himself from Jesus, but in every way he's saying, I have no idea who that person is. I am not his follower. And then the third time. This time it's the bystanders. after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. I do not know the man. Um, what's interesting is Peter moves into the gate, he moves into the doorway, he he separates himself trying to cloak his identity, trying to distance himself from Jesus and from the bystanders. But what's interesting is that apparently Peter doesn't shut up. Uh, he must be kind of a blabbermouth, right? And he's over there chatting away with somebody. Blah, 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 blah. And he's giving away his Galilean accent. And people from Galilee had a very different accent than people from Judea. It was was easily distinguishable. And everybody knew uh, by his chattering, by his uh, running of his mouth, that he's a Galilean. And they say, look, you, you must be one of him. Because you, you're from Galilee. It's Jesus of Nazareth. You must be one of them. You must be one of his followers. And again, he calls down curses and he swears this time. I do not know the man. May, may God curse me. Uh, and actually, um, it's possible, uh, the, the Greek here is a little confusing, and it's very possible that, that Peter, in this instance, does not actually curse himself, but he actually curses Jesus. He actually curses Jesus and says, "Cursed be that man, I don't know him. Right? Which is yet at even a, a whole other level of his denial, of his uh, really failing as a friend and follower and disciple of Jesus. And of course, we know the story immediately, verse 74b, immediately the rooster crowed. And that triggers this memory in, in Peter's mind from just a few hours earlier. When he had sworn that he would never uh, let Jesus down. That he would follow him no matter what, even to the point of death. And he remembers, uh, verse 75, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Uh, All of a sudden, uh, this flood of memories comes back and and Peter sees that he has done exactly what Jesus predicted he would. That he has failed Jesus exactly as Jesus said he would after he has been so determined and so serious about following Jesus to the end, about sticking with Jesus as a friend to the end. It all comes crashing down on him. And now he moves further away out into the darkness of the night. And all he is left with is tremendous grief at how he has failed. And he weeps bitterly. His failure to keep his word to Jesus. His disappointment in himself. That he, he was not the person he thought he was. That he did not stand up, up bravely and boldly like he thought he would. That he let a servant girl turn him into a coward. Uh, that he, in the end, had failed terribly Jesus, who he had claimed was his Lord and Master and Friend. Right? Um, maybe grieving most of all, that in the end, he proved to be one who cared only about himself and nothing about Jesus. Right? That's deep regret, right? That's deep. And in that moment... Peter, I think, felt, oh, if I could only do that over. If I could only go back and change what I just did. Right? But it's too late. Right? There is no going back. There's no taking back those words. right? Um, and so the question is, uh, is this regret going to haunt Peter for the rest of his life? Right? Will this now define who Peter is as a person? And, and you know it's easy for Peter to start thinking the rest of my life I'm going to be I'm going to be introduced as oh this is Peter the one that denied Jesus right. I'll have a name badge Peter the guy who denied Jesus right out of the twelve I'm the guy who denied him the others didn't I, only I did right. is that going to be what shapes Peter for the rest of his life Yeah you're the guy who when Jesus needed a friend more than any any time in his whole life. You're the guy that swore you didn't even know him. Those are the kind of feelings that are generated by regret and by guilt and by our failure. Well, then we turn a corner and we come to the story of Judas. And it starts a new chapter, verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. All right, so there's been this trial going on all night uh, and it's not clear if there were two kind of trials, one hearing at the house of the high priest and then one official one at the temple, or if they just kind of all blurred together. Uh, but what we see, and as Matthew records it, is it's the culmination of the, the Jewish leaders, the priests and the scribes and the Sanhedrin, to condemn Jesus. And at sunrise, when morning came, they, they pronounce him guilty, uh, and they uh, pronounce him worthy of death. And they, it says they bound him, verse 2, they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, when Judas becomes aware of the verdict, um, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, "What is that to us? See it, see to that yourself." And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. Uh, also uh, a story of, of tragic regret. and uh, so so when, when it becomes clear, and we don't know if, if uh, Judas is also in the courtyard, or perhaps Judas is actually because he was the one who was the one who turned him over, maybe he was given. A front row seat at the at the at the court hearing. Right? Maybe he was actually in there as the proceedings unfold. Uh, whatever the case, it, uh, he he became aware and, be, and and knew the end, knew that they pronounced Jesus guilty, and sentenced him to death. And of course, they they didn't have legal authority to do either. So now they must bind Jesus and take him to Pilate, who is the Roman official, who has the authority to actually. Uh, declare him legally guilty and to legally sentence Jesus to death. So they still have uh, some work to do because they've got to convince Pilate uh, that Jesus is indeed worthy of death. Um, but before that even happens, uh, Judas sees Jesus as condemned, and it says he changes his mind. Uh, what, what change? What? How is it that that Judas changed his mind? Uh, we don't really know. We 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 we. We don't get insight into what he is thinking, but there's some possibilities. Maybe he didn't really think it would go this far. Maybe he thought they would they would threaten Jesus, they would warn Jesus, and they would they would release him, and Jesus would be humbled uh, or would change his strategy. Um, or maybe just the reality of it all struck in, struck him in a way he didn't expect. Maybe he thought it would be a lot easier to hand his friend over uh, to his enemies. When he actually saw it unfold and saw how ugly it was, it it struck him as, as horrible um, uh, but but maybe also it could be that as he watched the trial if he was there, that Jesus' own attitude and the way Jesus conducted himself, the way Jesus answers or in many cases didn't answer the questions uh, and and against that the corruption and wickedness and blatant Deception and lies of the the high priest and, and the chief priests and the scribes. And as, as Judas watched the the real goodness of Jesus, who who just is silent, and, and the corruption of the Jewish leaders. Maybe all of that just sickened him. But whatever the case, we know that in the end Judas was made painfully aware that Jesus was actually innocent. But he said, I have I have betrayed, I have sinned because I have betrayed innocent blood. Judas becomes very aware that Jesus is not worthy of of the death sentence, certainly. Uh, And he becomes painfully aware uh, from his own experience with Jesus that Jesus was a good man not deserving of death. Um, And that the Jews were about to uh, murder an innocent and very good man. And that was a problem for Judas because it was Judas who handed this innocent man over to his enemies. Right? Whatever the the reason, uh, Judas changes his mind. Uh, Literally, uh, that that word, he changes his mind, literally has the idea of, of of a regret. He regrets what he has done. It's a a word that's very similar to and close to the idea of repent, but it's a different word. He doesn't repent in the biblical sense of his actions, but he deeply regrets them. Oh, how he wishes he had not done that. How he wishes he had not handed Jesus, an innocent man, over to his enemies who are now going to kill him. He desperately wants to undo it. He wants to hit that rewind button and wants to replay, and he wants to distance himself, because he realizes Jesus is innocent, and therefore he is guilty. And He says, I am guilty. I have sinned. If Jesus is innocent, I therefore am guilty of murdering an innocent person. And he knows that because he knows he is now a primary accomplice in Jesus' death. Maybe he didn't hand down the guilty, but he was part of it. He was on that team. And he is now responsible, uh, personally, for Jesus' death. And and it's not just murdering anybody. It is the blood of an innocent man. Uh, And in in ancient cultures, uh, this was an especially big deal. Like probably this is not something a phrase we've used often. I've betrayed innocent blood. Right? But it was a big deal in ancient cultures right, to take the life of somebody who was good, who was innocent, who was pure. Uh, it was a double evil. And so he wants to undo it. He wants to change it. And that's what regret does. Regret is this deep and, and, and desperate need to undo what cannot be undone. To change what cannot be changed. And and, and Judas is desperate. He's desperate to do something to undo it, to rewind that tape. He knows he's guilty and he wants to do anything to remove that guilt by undoing his action. And the only thing he can think of is to return the money. Not only did he betray them, but he did it at at the cost of 30 pieces of silver. So he takes it back to the priests and he wants to give them back the money that maybe this will solve it. Uh, But the priests are uh, amazingly heartless in their response to Judas. Their their, their answer to him is, What is that to us? See to it yourself. Uh, It's kind of a cryptic phrase, but really what it means is, Look, dude, that's not our problem. You're responsible for it. His blood is on your hands. You deal with it. That's, that's the heart of what their answer means. Right? Uh, these are men who are supposed to be the, the priests and shepherds of Israel. And the best they can do is say, yeah, you're guilty. It's on you. It's your problem. Right? Deal with it. Right? There's no compassion there. Um So if they won't take it, he throws it into the temple. He, he throws it at them, right to, to rid himself of uh, the blood money. Uh, and what's interesting is uh, the priests uh, uh, they don't know what to do with it either. And they say in verse eight, therefore, um, I'm sorry, verse, verse six, but the chief priest taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful. Uh, for us to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. Amazing. They admit it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Uh, And and therefore that field to this day has been called field of blood to fulfill what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel's. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So it fulfills prophecy. It's another important uh, Pro- Old Testament prophecy that, that is fulfilled in, in, in Judas's actions. But that's no consolation to Judas. Uh, not that he even knew about it. Not that he even put the pieces together. Uh, And and the reality is that returning the money changes nothing. Right? It does not rewind the tape. It does not change history. Jesus is still innocent. Judas is still the person who handed him over to his enemies. The Jews are still going to kill him. And Judas is still an accomplice in the whole thing. Judas is still guilty. Giving the money back doesn't do anything. And he cannot resolve this guilt. He cannot resolve this this regret. And so in despair at what he has done, the only option he sees left is to end his life. Um, he probably knew that his crime was deserving of death. Uh, and maybe he hoped that the Jews would actually execute him with Jesus. Maybe there would be some redemption. At least he would pay for his sin. But if they won't do it, Uh, he will, and he takes his own life. Um, But even in that, it changes nothing. And ultimately, suicide is uh, often a selfish attempt to run away from the problems, to want to run away from one's own grief, and in this case, guilt. Uh, But the sad reality is that guilt follows us to the grave and beyond. That's a very very clear teaching of Scripture. Uh, There's no relief from regret in death. And and, and so, Jesus, uh, when he talks about Judas, said it would be better that he had not been born because he will go to eternity carrying with him this regret and this pain of knowing the awareness of his own guilt. Um. And the saddest thing of all is that uh, the Bible is clear that forgiveness was available for him. Right? Uh, there was another way. Uh, but he was not looking for forgiveness. He was looking instead to erase what he had done. Right? And that was not an option. And so he takes his life. We have to talk about one, real briefly, about one, one, one more group. And this is actually a group who had no regret. And that was the chief priests and the elders who sentenced Jesus. By their actions towards Judas, it's clear that these guys don't regret what they're doing. But what's ironic is that they know they uh, they are doing something wrong because they accept the money as blood money. And it is ironic that they won't put it into the temple treasury because they know it's blood money. And in so doing, they condemn themselves. They are guilty of Jesus' blood as well. But they have no regret. They have no conscience about it. Um, they do not care about their own guilt, and they don't care about Judas's guilt. Uh, they are so calloused about their own treacherous plot. They don't feel the slightest degree of remorse or pang of guilt. It's a good reminder that regret is only a problem for those who care about right and wrong. Like, so some people really seriously don't ever regret anything because they don't really care about right or wrong. They're just evil. Right? Uh, regret is only a problem for people who are sensitive uh, to the problem of right and wrong and want to do what is right. Uh, so in that sense, I would say that regret is certainly better than no regret. <laughs> right? Like in this scenario, the most evil and wicked group were the religious leaders. Because they couldn't even have regret over their sin. Right? Regret is a good thing. But the, uh, um, and people with no regret might be happier in the short run, but they're far more guilty. But they will face a judgment uh, which they are not prepared for. Uh, so so, so, so the, the conclusion here is this, that regret ultimately is a gift. Okay? Regret is a gift. Uh, but it's it depends on what we do with that gift if it's helpful or destructive so I want to just wrap things up by looking at how regret worked in the life of Peter and in the life of Judas right for one of them it was a good thing for the other it was disastrous right uh, what is the difference what what is what is good grief what is good regret and what is bad regret well let's look at uh, real briefly, two things. And, and to help us interpret this, Paul wrote a brilliant verse in 2 Corinthians chapter seven, verse 10 that puts this uh, pointedly in amazing perspective. Paul writes this: "For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death." Amazing verse. And let's, let's look first at, at worldly sorrow, this worldly sorrow that produces death. And we see that uh, tragically illustrated in the life of Judas. What is worldly sorrow? When we look at the life of Judas, we see that worldly sorrow is, first of all, completely self-focused. Right? What's interesting is Judas was, was clearly more concerned about his own guilt than about Jesus' death. Right? That's pretty selfish. Like he's more worried about how it's going to affect his reputation and how it makes him look bad and guilty. Right? He's not moved that Jesus is about to die, he's turned upside down because he feels bad about his own guilt. Right? That's worldly sorrow. It's consumed with me. I'm sorry, but I'm sorry for what it's done to me, for how it's affected my life my reputation, how it's wrecked uh, my opportunities, right? It is rooted in selfishness. Uh, He is seeking to remove uh, its effects because of what it's done to him, right? Uh, And we see that basically uh, Judas makes three mistakes uh, with his sorrow. His sorrow was wrong at three levels. First mistake he sought to fix the past and change it rather than to redeem it. And the same is true for us. If we think somehow we, we are sorrow for, sorrow for our past mistakes and we want to fix our own past mistakes to make them go away rather than to see God redeem them, it will end in death. Right? It's a godly sorrow that ends in death. Um, the reality is that this could have been a gift that humbled Judas to see his need for God and the salvation that only God can provide. But instead, it only increased his pride. Right? The reason he is so selfish is he's worried about what it means to him, to his reputation, to his name. Right? And in pride, he strives uh, to change it to protect his pride to protect his reputation. Um, Instead of humbling it, it increases his pride. And the truth is that worldly sorrow is rooted in pride. It's driven by the motivation of seeking our own reputation, of salvaging our own name and our own concerns. Um, Next mistake and really his greatest, is, is uh, that ultimately uh, Judas didn't understand Jesus' uh, person or his mission. He really didn't understand who Jesus was and what his mission was. Uh, he saw Jesus as an innocent person who was about to die. Uh, he did not see Jesus as a conquering savior who had to go to the cross to overcome sin and grief and guilt by his own sacrifice. Right? Judas could not picture that. Um, and so, in the end, Judas', Judas Judas's greatest sin was not really in betraying Jesus. Because when we look in a minute at Peter, Peter and Judas weren't that far apart. There were some differences. But in, in, in the end, they both let their friend down terribly. Uh, Judas's sin was not ultimately your greatest sin. It was not in betraying Jesus. His greatest sin was failing to grasp God's rescue mission from sin through Christ. Right? Failing to see why Jesus had to go to the cross, even if he was part of it. That that really was the mission of God. Um, and so his only Uh, his only course of action is to take his own life. Worldly sorrow leads to death, whether at your own hands or just at the misery of life, lived without the freedom and joy of life in Christ. But then there's godly sorrow. That's what we want to know more about. What is this godly sorrow? How is it regret can have any redeeming purpose in our life? Well, we see it in the life of Peter. Now, we don't actually see it all here. And interestingly enough, um, this is the last mention of Peter in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew never comes back to Peter and says, oh, by the way, he was kind of an idiot, but he finally figured it out, right? Doesn't say that. Uh, but I think Matthew assumed and knew he's writing to a church. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to Christians uh, who clearly knew the story of Peter. And he assumes that knowledge uh, in, in telling the story. So we go to Acts, we go to uh, the epistles of Peter, we go to the history of how Peter got over this, right? And so, so so, what do we say about godly sorrow? Well, first of all, Peter was also mostly concerned with himself, right? Uh, it's true that even for Peter, a lot of his regret is very selfish and self-centered. How he had failed Jesus, how it would affect his reputation and his image. But I think there was also with Peter another side. And then there was with Peter some reality of knowing that he failed Jesus, who was his friend and Lord and leader. Right? That there, that there wasn't only selfishness in it. That there was something that could see beyond himself to see how it also affected Jesus. Right? That doesn't relieve the sorrow. Right? When you become more aware of how you and your actions have actually hurt other people, that actually makes the sorrow worse. Right? It deepens the grief. Because if you love that person, it hurts even more knowing you've hurt them. Right? I think Peter went there. I think Peter went there and he knew how it, what it meant for him to fail Jesus, what it meant for Jesus and how it hurt him. Um, second thing, though, that's significant about Peter's so- sorrow, Peter's regret As he makes no effort to undo what he's done. Unlike Judas who tried to fix it, Peter does not try to fix it. And actually the truth is, Peter could have done something. He could have stood out there weeping in the dark and said, Oh, what an idiot. What am I doing? I'm going to go back in there and tell him, no, you guys are right. I am a follower of Jesus and I am glad to be named his follower. You can kill me too because I want to be named with Jesus. He doesn't do that either, right? He doesn't do anything to try to undo what he's done, right? Instead, he weeps with this deep bitterness and grief where there is no comfort or relief in those tears. But we know that later things are very different for Peter, right? Uh, This grief, this sorrow works in his heart to good results. Um, so, So what is it that happened with Peter? Well, first thing, unlike Judas, Peter knew who Jesus was. If you remember, Peter was the one who first declared Jesus as Messiah, Son of the living God. In Matthew 16, 15, Jesus said to them, But who do you say I am? And Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So one thing Jesus, uh, Peter held on to is he knew who Jesus was. Now, he didn't get Jesus' mission, Right? That was was where Peter was, was falling down. He didn't understand the cross. He didn't understand why Jesus needed to die. But Peter did a second thing that was super critical. He stuck around long enough to find out what that mission was. Remember, Peter had gone to the courtyard to see what the end would be. And even though Peter's now watching from the dark... Uh, He watches, and he watches Jesus go to Calvary, and he watches Jesus nailed to the cross. And he sees what the end of it is, but he still doesn't understand it. But then three days later, Mary comes and announces the tomb is empty, and Peter and, and John run to the empty tomb, and Peter sees the empty tomb. And still, Peter can't quite understand what it's about. But then Jesus appears to them and there's Pentecost and there's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And as they contemplate the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, it finally clicks. And Peter finally understands what it was about. That Jesus had to give his life as the sacrifice for Peter's guilt. Right? Right? Peter came to understand what it meant. right He stuck around long enough. He didn't bail like Judas did. He saw it to the end until he understood what it meant. And thirdly, it was this very failure. It was this very sorrow and grief that ultimately brought him to see his vital need for Jesus and his saving work. right? Remember that Peter said, I'll I'll stick with you, Jesus, to the end. I will die for you. I got this. That's not a Peter who needs salvation. That's a Peter who thinks he's going to be another Messiah right along with Jesus. But what a gift it was that Peter uh, was inflicted with grief and regret. Because it's that very grief that made Peter realize I'm not saving anybody. I couldn't even stay with Jesus in his last, most desperate moment. I need grace. I need forgiveness. Because I am nothing. Right? The difference between Judas and Peter is Peter was humbled by his mistake. It was a godly sorrow that led to repentance because he was humbled And he saw his need for salvation, that he could not fix it himself. He could not change history. He could not change his mistakes. But that's okay, because it was that very mistake that brought him to the cross and to see his need for Christ. Um, And we know that uh, Peter was humbled because uh, we only know this story because Peter had to share it at some point, right? Uh, there was nobody else around that we know of that, that could report what Peter did, right? And, 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 and surely Peter was humble enough that he could tell this story, right? that he could make this account known as part of his testimony. Right? But also we know that Peter came to understand it because uh, in Acts chapter 2, uh, a very different Peter stands up before in that very temple, where Jesus was was condemned and he proclaims Christ, right? Boldly, he preaches Christ. And it's interesting, in his sermon to the people in Jerusalem in Acts 2, he he says this to the crowd, he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter came to the awareness That this was God's saving purpose and mission. This was God's plan from the beginning. Right? But he goes on in his sermon a little bit later. uh, And again, uh, he he preaches a humility of repentance. Notice what he says to them. He says in Acts 2.36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified, right? That's pretty painful words, right? He says, right out to the crowd in Jerusalem, you killed him, and God's named him Lord and Christ, and you murdered him. Right? Great way to win friends and influence people, right? Uh, like that's not very that's not very um, seeker friendly preaching. You murderers, you Jesus killers, right? Wow. I don't think he went to the same preaching school as some people do, right? But he goes on, he says, Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Right? They were cut to the heart. In other words, there's regret. Right? There's some godly sorrow going on with them. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What can we do about our guilt and our regret? And Peter said to them, amazing words, from a guy who had been through this, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. Peter had been down this road and he knew the answer. He said, you just need to repent and call out on that Jesus because he died for you. And there is forgiveness for your sins in him. And I know because I've experienced it. Right? Peter can say, I know. It, It hurts that wound of regret. But it can be an incredible gift if it brings us to repentance, to the place of knowing we need Jesus and his salvation. It led to true repentance, a change of heart and life, not just regret and deep disappointment. Right? Uh, so, so, so that offer is to all of us. right? Uh, Jesus offers us a, a, a cleansing and a forgiveness that is without regret. Let me read 2 Corinthians 7.10 one more time and listen to these words. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Without regret. Amazing promise. Um, Jesus can take that and will take that regret away by redeeming it, by turning it into a gift. When we understand that it was that very sorrow and very pain that brought us to the place of repentance and salvation. Right? Then, then there's no sorrow in it anymore. There's no wanting to change it because it was the greatest gift God's ever given us, because it brought us to Him. Right? It is a gift. It is something we rejoice in. Not because we made a mistake, but because our awareness of it and our, our grief over it brought us to salvation and brought us to Christ. So we can rejoice in in what God has done to bring us to himself. Even letting us fail so horribly. But through that to know the wealth of his grace and forgiveness. Right? And that's what we want to worship and celebrate this morning and every Sunday. The grace of Christ that overcomes our sin. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand.